Hi everyone, it's Victoria Stapleton from Little Brown Books for Young Readers and Little Brown School and Library Marketing. We recently had the chance to attend the National Council of Teachers of English Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. Had a really great time and we were lucky enough to record a couple podcast episodes with prominent educators, reviewers, and evaluators. This conversation is with Dr. Ebony Elizabeth Thomas from the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. I want to apologize in advance. I thought we were in a relatively private nook, and it seemed quiet at the time we were recording, but clearly not that quiet on the background noise. So I apologize in advance, but it's still a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. This is Victoria Stapleton from Little Brown Books for Young Readers and Little Brown School and Library. We are here at the National Council of Teachers of English in the very lovely city of Baltimore. And yes, I have enjoyed my time here. I am privileged today to sit here in a semi-quiet nook with Dr. Ebony Elizabeth Thomas of the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. She wrote The Dark Fantastic, a book for which I did pre-order and pay retail. Yes, if longtime listeners know that I pay retail for almost nothing. You will enjoy it. I admit that I'm of a somewhat longer vintage than Dr. Thomas, so some of the um, fandoms were not uh, something I accessed (laughs) very readily, but it's a really interesting consideration along with the rest of her work about books and stories, not just books, but stories as social beings. And I'm excited to have her on the podcast today, and we hope that we have a wonderful conversation. Yes. Thanks for having me. Yes. uh, We will hear sounds in the background, um, but bear with us. It will be awesome. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Thanks. This is so cool. Um, I have followed your work in a variety of formats and and then reading The Dark Fantastic. um, And one of the things I anticipated in reading your work that we would be simpatico about is books are social beings. I always say to my graduate students at Penn, books travel where we do not. So when I was a little girl growing up in Detroit, Um, There wasn't much money to travel, Mm -hmm. but if I read a book, and it sounds so cliche today, you know, we have the internet, and so books aren't the only vehicles of traveling in your imagination, but they still remain a powerful way to experience um, other existences, other identities, other locales, other possibilities. And here is where books still trump anything visual or mm-hmm. anything on the internet. Here's the difference. When you're reading, you're dreaming wide awake. When you're reading, you're imagining. Mm-hmm. And there is something important about the capacity that children and teens have to dream that is form through the act of reading. I think the act of reading itself still is super important, even in a fast-paced, fraught with tension digital age. I love that answer because, well, partly because I love books and also I was a strange child and what I was reading at age 10 was not what the other kids were reading. Longtime listeners know I'm not gonna talk about Nixon again and you are welcome, but, It also comes out of my pre, um, 
publishing life, I was doing a PhD in biblical studies, and I always come to your work from the uh, perspective of something called form criticism, which I don't know if you know what that is, most listeners will not, but it is a specific sort of biblical criticism which looks at the social function of stories and the social function of literature. What is that designed to do? Um, an easy example of something like that is say a, a business letter has a very specific format, it is meant to do a very specific thing, but it can have a much more diffuse example. One thing that I think is particular to your work, what is the social function of fantasy and fantasy stories? Have, have you thought about that, particularly in the classroom? I've thought a lot about it because um, one of the things a mentor of mine Philip Nell of Kansas State University, who is a prominent Seuss scholar, mm -hmm. has often said is that genre is the new Jim Crow. So this is what mm -hmm. that means from his um, important book was The Cat in the Hat, Black. Um, oh, I'm sorry, the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. Sorry to interrupt. Please no. <laughs> continue, Dr. Thomas. I just want to make sure everybody knows because there may be a quiz later. <laughs> yes, his book was so great. Um, was the Cat and the Hat Black, Examining Dr. Seuss and His Cats. And I may not have that title exactly mm -hmm. right, but what, he's, what he noted in a very important chapter is that so many of the books that feature children of color tend to be historical or um, around food and holidays. So we have far fewer reads that are in other genres. So for instance, fantasy, science fiction, action adventure, romance, and mystery. And because he is a wonderful digital humanist these days, he actually did some number crunching um, he looked at all of the um, African-American children's literature published, I want to say, in 2015. Mm -hmm. So there was a viral graphic that came out that year that showed only maybe 7% of the books published featured African-American characters. But then he delved into um, the Cooperative Children's Book Center data and saw that the vast majority of those books were historical texts published for Black History Month. Okay, so I'm in two minds about that. I think that it is very important for all children, not just black children, to realize that black history is United States history. So it is mm -hmm. super important that publishers continue to give us amazing reads um, about enslavement, uh, the Civil War, the Jim Crow period, the Civil Rights era. President Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. However, what some of us who are thinking about black children's literature are finding is that there are all these gaps that are formed in the child's imagination because they begin to imagine black folks as only existing in hardship or struggle or advocating for our rights. And so when I was a little girl um, long ago in the stone ages of the late 20th century, um, I wanted reads that were dessert. I put it in the dark fantastic as shedding my skin and just being human. But I don't, I think that was not the, that was not the greatest analogy. Mm -hmm. That's not what I meant. What I meant was, you know, um, I love being of African descent. I love being black American, but sort of the implications of 
being black in the real world is something that I longed to escape as I read. And so I wanted to read about children who were off on magical adventures or living in the future instead of thinking about um, enslavement or Jim Crow or tough stuff. But that speaks to the underlying social function of those books that were available is to communicate the message that to have black or brown skin is to be fundamentally a problem yes. or to expect that one's life will be arduous and problematic. Yes. W.E.B. Du Bois has a famous quote from The Souls of Black Folk, mm -hmm. um, and I know you know it, Victoria. How does it feel to always be a problem? I answer, seldom a word. And he wrote those words at, you know, over a century ago. Mm -hmm. And yet, black children and teens are confronted with that in the literary landscape because of you know what happened, because it is important for kids to know their history. But when we read those books, not all kids are affected equally mm -hmm. by what they read. So alongside the learning of history through children's literature, our children are very often having to wrestle with the implications of being black in the United States and of African descent around the world. Yeah. And I think it's, it, I do think it's interesting because we see a book like The Hate You Give, which is, a very powerful read, but then, and I say this as a publisher with pinkness in my face, <laughs> there is the sense of publishing loves a success story and what else can we have as a success story right. so that it does, it can be sort of a reinforcing cycle and can we get um, um, books that fall, fall out of that. So I'm thinking even for my own list, Sherry Winston's books about Brianna Justice or Jada Sly or some of the, or uh, a book like Saturday by Oge Mora, which I relate to as a child of a single mother. That is not a, a story about problem within the skin. That is problem of the class mm -hmm. and, and, and also enjoyment just of mother and daughter. And how do we get more books like that? Um, I'm thinking, again, mm -hmm. of fantasy, and we see Octavia Butler. Love the new repackages we're doing, and we're going to get additional promotion for her, but then also somebody like Samuel Delaney. And there has been this, this thread of African-based fantasy that we haven't always seen out there. Sure. Could you speak more about the, the power of thinking about using fantasy as a genre in this area for social the social function of it. When I was really young and active in science fiction and fantasy fandom um, and writing my own um, original fantasy as well, I remember someone saying to me, I can't remember if this was someone in publishing mm -hmm. or in the fan um, convention world, Ebony, you think that black fantasy and science fiction is going to get both black readers in general among the audience and the larger science fiction and fantasy readership. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. You're thinking that you're gonna get the two broader circles, but really you're only gonna get the intersection of the Venn diagram. So you're only going to get, this mm -hmm. was in the early 2000s, um, black readers of science fiction and fantasy. And uh, you know that's just not enough for the books to sell through. Now of course, um, 15, 20 years later, we are seeing 
how untrue that is because mm-hmm. we have books um, like Children of Blood and Bone and um, last year and um, Tristan Strong punches a hole in the sky this year mm-hmm. that are rich, evocative mm-hmm. fantasies set on both sides of the Black Atlantic that are hitting the New York Times bestseller list. So, um, yes, the question has already been answered. Will um, non-black readers or readers who are not of color read diverse fantasy and science fiction? Mm -hmm. I think that um, the sales of these recent books um, are the answer I was looking for all those years ago when I was rendered speechless by the idea that only blurds like me would enjoy Octavia Butler or Sam Delaney. Um, One other point is that um, before a few years ago, one of the things I often talked about on social media was that um, there was an expectation that if you were black and writing science fiction and fantasy in the U.S. um, and wanted to be traditionally published, you needed to be a MacArthur genius. I mean, Octavia, well, think about who was published pretty much genius level folks. So Octavia Butler, Sam Delaney, um, I would argue that um, by any measure, Nettie Okorafor and Nora Jemison, who did break through mm-hmm. toward the end of last decade, so in the late 2000s, you almost had to be <laughs> at a genius level. Like you weren't just writing, you know, and I remember, you know, telling a friend, you know, I just want to be a middleist author. This would have been in the late 90s or early 2000s. And mm-hmm. they said, well, there is no black midlist. So just thinking about... There's in not science, really a midlist. Yeah, well, yeah, there's no midlist <laughs> anymore. That's an artifact of the 20th century. Yeah, and sorry, guys. Culture. Yeah, no midlist, guys. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, we have seen the landscape change. And I um, know that podcast guests often don't ask questions back of Victoria, but I want to ask. So what do you think? Do I have an answer? (laughs) (laughs) But what do you think has changed? I mean, I'm welcoming all these changes. So, I mean, there were 120, we have 120 book, you know, uh, black Mm -hmm. science fiction and fantasy books published since uh, Virginia Hamilton's Justice and Her Brothers in in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Of those 120 books, we only had 26 as of the turn of the millennium. And we only had, um, no, no, we only had 26 as of 2010. And everything else that has been published, almost 100 books in the 2010s. I hate to give it too much. Okay. Yeah, I know where you're going with this yeah, question. Yeah, so. And I hate to give it too much power. Okay. But social media has transformed this. And I don't want to say necessarily it's the John Green effect because there are details of that dynamic that are not correct. That people think, oh, if I do that, no. No, no, no. But um, I will say, and it's it's very interesting time in book publishing and book evaluation and book recommendation that social media has disrupted conversations that used to rise up every five to seven years and then die down again. Mm-hmm. They are not able to be ignored. They mm-hmm. cannot be tamped down because uh, there is a dislocation of authority out of print media into digital media and that can mean uh, different things that's twitter conversations although i don't love them i like mm-hmm. twitter mm-hmm. for raising awareness of something mm-hmm. a voice or something and then go it's find not it a vehicle I, for do, conversation. I don't i don't, don't it's not a vehicle for conversation don't come to me with a nuanced <laughs> take on twitter because i'm not going to buy it i'm really not but it does say that there it does social media allows us to see that there is 
a hunger, interest, desire, purchasing power, whether that is in the library or in the consumer, for those stories. Mm -hmm. It isn't necessarily that you have to have 50,000 Twitter followers in order to get a book contract. Which is what some people say. Which is some people say. But it does need to show that there, that, that there is interest in that. And that power, one of the powers mm -hmm. of social media, particularly Twitter, less extent Facebook uh, and, and Instagram, is there's interest in those stories that is demonstrable. So you don't mm -hmm. have to mm -hmm. see a giant platform. You just have to see interest see. in that. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's an interesting time as a publisher to look at these stories. Um, I think about 12 years ago, because I have been doing this job a while, I was on record as saying, if you show me another bleeped expletive dragon book, I will come to you across the table with this dull pencil. And it will not go well. Because there were a lot of dragon books. Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> but there were a lot of dragon books from the perspective of Western culture. Mm -hmm. Dragons do not have the same mythic function, social function, literary symbolism in Chinese culture or other Asian cultures and so when you started seeing stories that drew on mm -hmm. that those traditions that adds to conversation mm -hmm. that adds to interestingness and there's different ways of thinking about being a literary tourist which can be mm -hmm. <coughs> problematic mm -hmm. but it is exploring different modalities of thinking mm -hmm that are interesting in stories. And that's particularly the case with children. And you work a lot at NCT with book evaluation mm -hmm. for children in classrooms. And that's not, that is African-American children and other yeah. children of children. color. But then yeah. there's, you know, less melanated children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, and these right. are classrooms and building schools. classroom culture. So mm -hmm. how do you think about your work in relation to building these oh. book evaluation mechanisms, et cetera, mm -hmm. in class, building classroom culture? Mm -hmm. I think that, um, one of the things that has been so interesting is looking at what younger white millennials and certainly all of Generation Z, who is the most uh, diverse generation in U.S. history, um, it is so interesting to note what they like and what they're interested in. And one of the things that I think isn't often noted about some of the recent um, bestsellers by authors of color. So probably the most notable um, would be Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give on the YA list. Here's the thing about The Hate You Give that that elevates, elevates it beyond sort of the black pain narrative. Mm -hmm. I told friends here at NCTE and around the children's literature critical world that I had not heard that such a fun voice in a book with such heavy subject matter mm -hmm. since Christopher Paul Curtis's debut. One of my colleagues mm -hmm. said that um, what Christopher Paul Curtis does is he takes a naive child narrator and lenses these difficult historical moments through the eyes of a child. Mm -hmm. And what Angie did so beautifully was that she lends the whole Black Lives Matter um, movement and um, police violence, et cetera, but through the eyes of a girl who is very much an all-American teen. Mm -hmm. So she's hilarious. She's a Harry Potter fan. She's a sneakerhead. She plays basketball. So um, it does both in ways that I find super impressive. 
-hmm. because one of the things that um, is true about black embodiment mm -hmm. here and in other places around the Western world. I'll only speak for the West. I will not mm -hmm. speak for the rest. But in the Western world, to be in, you know, a black body, to exist in one, is weighty. You know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of weight to it. To borrow um, Tony K. Bambara's um, phrasing in the salt eaters. And so one of the things that the creative has to do is figure out how to deal with that weight either some lean into it heavily mm -hmm. and if you're really good you know there's impact and power in your narrative however you know when you're carrying around a lot of weight either you know embodied or as a reader because even no matter who you are even if, if you're black or not when you're entering a narrative where you're dealing with um the re you know the reality of uh black existence you feel that weight as a reader and so a, a creative um amazing author finds ways to find the humanity pull the humanity out within that weight mm -hmm. and so i've seen it happen in the best of contemporary middle grade and ya fiction of the past 20 years um i can't wait to see more of that yeah in um, fantasy, science fiction, romance, um, LGBTQ, which is not a genre. It, we should be... Um, is not a yeah, genre. is not a genre. We should be including great queer rep throughout all mm -hmm. genres of children's and middle grade and young adult literature. Um, so it is so important for us to look at narratives and amplify authors who can do both. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a difficult task because it's a, it's a task that, um, you know, writers from the majority, no matter what the identitarian majority is, so whether or not it's racial majority, gendered majority, or the gender that has the most power, you know, sexuality, you know, so, but if you are working from a minority perspective or a minoritized perspective, mm -hmm. you do have to, your task is inherently more difficult because otherwise you'll end up with a laborious black pain narrative whether it's mm -hmm. contemporary realism or fantasy or science fiction mm -hmm. and it'll be plotting so it's important in a classroom to mm -hmm. see the variety of these books represented yes. in a classroom read and for a teacher to be aware of that classroom and the classroom dynamics and recommending these texts absolutely absolutely um um, work that I'm doing that is um, related to the dark fantastic but um, a little different is my work on enslavement in children's literature and why kids are rejecting these kinds of books in class and what that might do for their reading achievement so mm -hmm. if the vast majority of books that kids of color um, especially black Latinx and native kids um, you know receive show their people who are like them in abject positions whether you know you're having to deal with the first book that you get in school about um, a black person is Harriet Tubman yeah. who is amazing Harriet is amazing we love and revere her yes. but there's a lot of weight yeah on that there book is. and the weight isn't and the weight is um, unequal so mm -hmm. if you're the only black kid sitting in your first or second grade class and it's Black History Month and you're reading about Harriet Tubman, it takes a very skilled teacher to really recognize that weight and the and unequal nature of it. you also don't want white kids to see that through the fiction that they have in their classrooms or even the nonfiction they have in their mm -hmm. classrooms to associate 
that whatever that marginalization is with being a problem. Yes. You know, we were going back to the point of mm -hmm. uh, African American history is American history. Mm -hmm. It's American history. Right. It's American history. Um, but we have to get past this idea that the vegetable novel is the that kids of color are the vegetables on the plate and the dessert is those cute blonde kids. Right. Because they're not. Right. <laughs> well, you want to be McMurray, you know. I mean, things are better now for my nieces and nephews, mm -hmm. but, you know, I wanted to be Meg Murray. I wanted to be Anne Shirley, who got to live, you know, in Avonlea. And I appreciated so much actually having some black children's literature when I was a girl in mm -hmm. the 80s. But, again, you had the main, you know, main course, you must eat your vegetables. Here is the spinach. Here is the Brussels mm -hmm. sprouts learning this and internalizing how strong your ancestors were um, will make you strong versus I am 11 and I want to play and yes. I want to stretch my imagination. And so I think we can do both. I think we have to yeah. do both at the same time. I know that a lot of your work in, uh, in sharing with classrooms is building, building mm -hmm. those lists yes. and that advocacy of books as social function that is delightful and lovely because fun is a social function, leisure is a social function, lightness is a social function. Yes, um, yes it's allegedly a family podcast, but shits and giggles is a social <laughs> function. <laughs> I love it. So I, I really appreciate when I look at how you're talking about books and being reminded about that sort of thing, but also in addition, as you mentioned before, it is, you know, whether that is class-based or um, sexuality-based, which I think is a thing where we need to do better. I remember um, years ago we were doing, an, for NCTE, we were doing a sheet of like, here's all our LGBTQ books, and we would put it on the thing. Well, I think because our company is LBYR, it was basically lesbians. <laughs> and that's fine, but I was like, Oh, until that moment of putting that sheet together, we were like, oh, we don't publish gay men? <laughs> Whoa. That's a new one. <laughs> so it, it's interesting in my job seeing, you know, together over time how we do those things. Um, I very much appreciate that you took the time to be with me today. Is there anything Thank else you. before we leave that you would like to talk about with, you know, a, a, maybe a plug for the Dark Fantastic? Oh, yes. Uh, so, like <laughs> no, not published by Little Brown Books for Young Readers or Hachette Books, but still delightful. I remind you that I did pay retail people. <laughs> and I was not disappointed. The Dark Fantastic Race and the Imagination from Harry Potter to the Hunger Games is a look at diversity in the landscapes of the literary imagination for our young people. Um, in it, I ask questions like, well, how did kids respond to Rue, who was the first um, child character, prominent child character to die in the Hunger Games. I talk about Gwen and Merlin and what kids did when they saw that, you know, Queen Guinevere of medieval legendary fame was 
um, play, portrayed by a black woman. And I examine and reveal my ignoble uh, time in Harry Potter fandom in the early 2000s. It was published by NYU Press mainly because I had to earn tenure at Penn and Penn says you cannot have a trade book and I'm sure someone is a Penn alumni who is listening but listen on the professor side you must have a book from a reputable university press when you've what for tenure so a trade book deal yeah we're a little suspicious of it because you know they want to know are you trying to be a public intellectual or not and so yes <laughs> so my book was very uh, wonderfully and beautifully published by NYU Press but in the future I'm hoping to figure out how to take some of the ideas from that book and make them available for young readers, um, you know, parents, caregivers, and teachers, my people, teachers. And um, so I'm thinking about an addition for young readers and thinking through what that might look like. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Thomas. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So this has been the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. My voice is that of Victoria Stapleton, and with me has been Dr. Ebony Elizabeth Thomas from the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education, and we are going to say goodbye now.